welcome to Tender Buttons. I'm Jessica Andrews. And I'm Jack Young. This is our very first episode of Tender Buttons. Over the coming months, we're going to be bringing you conversations with some of our favourite writers and artists about their work, process, and much more besides. And for this episode, I'll be interviewing my co-host, Jessica Andrews. Welcome to your own show, Jessica. Thanks very much. I'm going to introduce Jess to those of you who don't know her. She's a writer of fiction, poetry, and journalism. And we're going to be talking today about her debut novel, Saltwater, published on Scepter in spring 2019, which has been described as an exploration of mother-daughter relationships and identity in relation to place, social class and the body. It tells the fractured coming-of-age story of Lucy, who grows up in the northeast of England, keen to escape to a more exciting life. As a student, she moves to London, where a clamorous world of warehouse parties and pop-up bars presents a new set of questions about belonging. On graduation, Lucy retreats to her grandfather's stone cottage in remote Donegal, and there sets about piecing together her family's history, hoping that in confronting her origins, she will know something about her future. Uh, yes, so I'm going to start by reading you a very short extract, and then I'm going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So the story is told in uh, kind of short vignettes, mm -hmm. and this is one of them. My mother grew beautiful. She had long, dark hair and something untamed about her. She wore floral jeans with leather belts and men's shirts knotted at the waist. She played her Mark Bolin record with the leopard print label over and over as she hairsprayed her perm to go out at the weekends. She drank lager and lime, sat with her elbows on pub tables, dimpling her cheeks at the local boys and smuggling secrets in her eyes through the smoke. So that's actually a detail I pinch from real life. Mm -hmm. And my mum really did have a Mark Bolan record that I inherited. And I know that something she used to listen to when she was young and she was getting ready to go out. And I think one of the themes in the book is about how to connect with people who came before you or kind of like your parents, younger selves. And um, I think music is a very effective way to do that. You know, sometimes I listen to that record when I'm getting ready to go out and kind of, I don't know, it's a good way to reflect on the parallels, but also the differences in our lives. Mm -hmm. Kind of want to start by just thinking more generally about the idea of the book and where it came from. So could you say something about that? Yes. <laughs> well, I knew that I wanted to write a novel but I was sort of, I wrote a couple of, well, I half wrote a couple of different versions of this novel first. And I felt like it wasn't quite right because I was veiling it in a lot more fiction. Like it's a fictional novel, but I guess some parts of it are a little bit autobiographical and some parts are completely made up. But I think at the beginning I was trying to tell, I was trying to tell this same story which I guess I was trying to tell my story but you know at one point I had a third person narrator and yeah it just felt like it wasn't quite right it felt like I was trying I was avoiding um I was avoiding the truth of it or I was avoiding kind of the heart of it in order to distance it from my life and that showed mm -hmm. and so eventually during my writing process, I decided I wasn't going to write a novel. Mm -hmm. And I was just going to sit down every day and write what I felt like writing. Um, 
so I did and then that grew and grew and grew and then eventually became a novel so I think that I read something that Zadie Smith said years ago which I think is actually quite true and she said you know people are either like meticulous planners and they make lots of maps and they plan everything out very thoroughly or you have people who kind of just sit down and write without a plan and I tried to be a planner first mm. and I made char character maps I stuck them all over the walls I like studied the structure of books I guess I went about it in a bit of an academic way first but actually it was only when I just kind of stopped that and went more on instinct that the things I really cared about really came out. So do you feel that there is like a kind of preconceived idea, like traditionally, if you like, about what a novel should be or how you should go about writing a novel, which I suppose you were at first like subscribing to, but felt like you couldn't connect with that way because of what you wanted to write in the end? Yeah, well, I guess it's, so I did a master's degree in creative writing, and I guess the things I learned about were, like, um, different kinds of structures and how to build characters. You know, because I guess if you learn something often in an institution, it's in a prescriptive way, because mm -hmm. that's how things are often taught. But then I think you've kind of, or for me, I had to take all of those things, but then find my own way. Mm -hmm. And then I also think there's a lot of, like, mystique around the idea of a novel and it seems like this really big scary intimidating thing and I remember I used to just sit there and I used to pick up books and they seemed so fat mm. <laughs> and had so many words and I thought I'm never going to be able to do this but then I think like once I had the mindset of oh actually I'm not writing a novel I'm just writing mm. and you take that kind of power or status word mm. away that I found that really helpful and mm -hmm. I was able to do it mm -hmm. in a more genuine way. Mm -hmm. So what was the shift like at first when you went from this kind of more detached third person uh, way of going about the narrative voice to the first person where you spoke about how it was kind of clearly referencing your own life mm. and so there's blurring between fiction and reality mm. or what are those two terms? You know? How was that switch initially? How did it feel? Well, I think actually one of the reasons why I was reluctant to draw so closely from my own experiences is because I felt like my life was kind of trivial. Mm. But also that's kind of connected to the main themes of my book, which are kind of about gender and class and like the precarity and vulnerability of, of like a young working class women, mm -hmm. I guess. And I guess because because you're not taught that that experience is valid or because there's not much representation of that experience, I felt like it was kind of like cheesy or trite or silly. And I feel like I'm kind of fighting that all of the time, even now, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of like, um, yeah, trivializing your own experiences or trivializing the things that have happened to you because they don't seem like important things to be written about. So it's kind of like through my novel, I'm trying to push against that on a wider sphere, like within literature, I guess, but also in my own personal psychology. Mm -hmm. um, and also I felt like when I first finished the book, I had this real sense that, um, you know, I was going to portray it as completely fictional and I was going to really distance it from myself when people asked about it. 
Um, but now I feel that, um, and yeah, I, I know there's this big debate about women often being asked about if their books are autobiographical, um, but I think it would be very limiting for me to say it was completely fictional because I feel like the whole, or one of the main reasons for writing for me is that I want to open up conversations about things and if I really distance myself from the novel, then I can't, then those conversations can't be had in the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you, would, you, would you get the sense that the question itself or the obsession of critics or whoever it might be about like trying to determine what's autobiographical and what's fiction, that in itself is like limiting to writers? Well, I think it's very confusing because when you're writing it all gets mixed up mm -hmm. so like for example in my book um you know there's some things that i've drawn from like my actual relationship with my mother and her life but also some things are completely made up mm. and my mum has read the book and she said something like i can't even remember there's a there's a detail oh yeah there's a detail where um the uh lucy's father drives drives through the pubs in the city looking for Lucy's mother when they've broken up mm -hmm. and he's wearing a wig to disguise himself and my mum said to me Jess did that actually happen or did you make it up mm. and I was like I don't know did you tell me that or did I make it up mm. and now neither of us can remember if it's true or not but now that's part of our memory mm. like now I remember that as oh yeah that's an incident that happened I can remember my mum telling me about it mm -hmm. but also I think it might be a false memory mm. so it's kind of like um putting things into a narrative is like a very um powerful way of making sense of your experiences mm -hmm. um but also kind of like memory is fiction and details get confused or conflated so i don't think it's like I don't think it's a pointless question that should never be asked because at the same time I think it can bring up lots of interesting things mm -hmm. and I think this relationship between fiction and truth is quite interesting and I think it's interesting that people are obsessed by that you know why is something why do people want things to be true like why are we always looking for the truth in mm. things um, and is something is a feeling more valid or an experience more valid if it actually happened mm -hmm. In the synopsis that we spoke about, there was talk about this cottage in Donegal, but the cottage in Donegal exists, and that is part of the process of writing this novel. Can you yes. talk to me about the process? Yes. So I was living in London, mm -hmm. and I was working lots of jobs. I was working in a cafe and a bar a lot, and I was doing like tutoring and, and writing workshops and I had lots of jobs and my head was all over the place and I didn't really have any money and I would I would kind of like try and write poems on my lunch hour or something and then I felt like okay if I want to write seriously then I've got to do something dramatic and I needed a way in which I didn't have to pay rent I figured I needed to be not be having to earn rent all the time so I could just focus on it and my granddad actually did live in Donegal and he died a couple of years ago. And there's like a very tiny house that was very run down that he left. 
and it's in a very remote town on the west coast of Ireland, um, which I am familiar with because we used to go and visit them. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to go and live in the house and write the novel. And it was almost a bit like I dared myself to do it and I told everyone about it. So then I had to do it. Like I made it into a big thing and talked about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had like a leaving party. So I was like, now I have to go. And um, my two very good friends, Miranda and Colin, flew over to Ireland with me and stayed for the first week, which I was very grateful for. But it's, it's quite a long journey because I don't drive. So you have to fly to either Belfast or Dublin and get a very long bus or look through the mountains. Then the bus drops you off in a car park. Then you have to get a taxi to this house. Um, yeah, so anyway, Miranda and Colin left and I was in the house and I had the task of writing the novel and it was um it's a very beautiful place but it's also quite isolated and I didn't have like an internet connection or anything like that which was probably good for my writing mm -hmm. I thought I could only hack it for a couple of months but in the end I stayed I got really into it and I stayed there for like seven months mm -hmm. writing but yeah it was kind of like it's a really like beautiful incredible place and it's right by the sea and it's very dramatic but I didn't you know and that leaked into the book but it's not I didn't go there I think like it sounds very romantic and there is this romantic idea of like writers scribbling away in their rural mountain homes but really it was more of a necessity of like okay I need to not pay rent and you know I, I had something I had like 200 pounds saved up and I just lived on like a tenner a week then I got some online teaching work mm. um so yeah but it was a very transformative experience and I've never lived anywhere like that before or had so much time to think about things I sort of felt like my life had been on fast forward forever mm. and then I finally had some time to like stop and think about stuff and write and yeah mm-hmm and what is it like now that, so that's the kind of process of writing the book and what was it like to kind of share the book with uh, your family who were, um, were so kind of linked into Yeah, it was novel? absolutely terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was very, very, very nervous about sending it to my mum and my dad. And yeah, I still worry about it all the time. And my brother, who's also in there, and they've all been incredibly supportive and of course they're excited and proud but I think even if you know the book wasn't so much well wasn't influenced by their lives it's kind of like it's rare that as a child you kind of open yourself up so much to your parents you know mm. I felt like my mum suddenly knew all these like weird things I thought about sex or like mm. so it's quite scary in that respect but then also my dad said something quite interesting, which relates to the truth and fiction thing, mm -hmm. where he said, so I've written about Sunderland in the 80s and 90s, which is where my parents lived and, and where they met. And obviously I had this imagining of it that I've constructed through like songs and photos and things that my mum's told me. And in my head, it's like the absolute, that's how it was. I've reflected the truth. And my dad said, oh, it was really weird reading it because you've kind of like, written about this time that you weren't part of and he said so it's like like yeah you've captured it but also you haven't captured it 
and not in an insulting way, but for me that felt felt quite freeing because it's like, oh, I think I'm writing some kind of truth about things that's going to hurt people. And he was like, oh, but to me it's so obviously a novel, and and that's not actually what it was like, and and that felt very reassuring. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. yeah. And I suppose um, it goes back, yeah, to the fiction and reality debate, and kind of the novel quite frequently talks about stories and ownership over stories and who's who mm. can tell whose stories mm. and there seems to be a tension in the novel between the way a child or the protagonist or Lucy reconstructs these stories of like her ancestry and stuff mm. so yeah about who has the right to be telling the stories mm. yeah well this is something that I kind of uh, wrestle with a lot mm-hmm. as does Lucy in the, <laughs> in the book like who has the right to tell whose story, who, you know, who has the right, okay, so I'm writing about class, for example, okay, so what gives me the right to write about class, or to speak about, you know, you're, you're constantly, I think if you're, like, a self-critical person, you're, like, it it can be almost crippling, that kind of self-doubt, like, do I have the right to say this, do I have the right to tell this, is this my story, is this someone else's story, which is probably a good thing to think about, but then I also think there's something incredibly, empowering about writing a story or writing your story and being given the opportunity to put it into the world because actually you're given this space to kind of like construct yourself and say what you think that often people aren't given but then I think also that kind of provokes a lot of anxiety and self-doubt particularly if you are a person who hasn't often been given space in the world you feel like undeserving of that space so I feel like I'm constantly grappling with okay I've told this story that's my story but it's also a fictional story and it's also a collection of these other people's stories and now I've been given a platform to talk about it and then sometimes I feel almost like uh I have all this self-doubt or I have all this have I really got the right to be here so you know I think it's like so going back to the the idea of like do I have the right to talk about class for example because, you know, I grew up in a really, like, uh, working-class place, but now my life is far away from that in some ways. But then that's always there. It's so insidious, and that's all. That's how my psychology has been formed, and that's always going to be inside of me. So, yes, I do have the right to talk about class, because actually it's, like, affecting my life every day, even mm. though the material, the material layout, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though, like, my daily life, is you know I'm a writer like mm. so mm. yeah it, I think these things are always you can't escape them mm-hmm. so it's important that you talk about them mm-hmm. actually that's what I'm telling myself <laughs> yeah yeah the mantra um okay well my, maybe I'm going to go into the novel a little bit now yeah and it seems a good place to start is looking at like voice and the seen and the not seen the heard and the unheard mm-hmm and there's a particularly straight there's frequent bits in the novel where Lucy feels that she is uns, like she can't get any permanence or a sense of being able to define herself mm-hmm. within the world or kind of leave an imprint or something mm-hmm. and I suppose the telling these stories as you've said is one way in which it gives some kind of form to that gives it to mm-hmm. her existence and there's a really powerful bit when one of her partners while well, she's at university in London who comes from a very like comfortable middle class background and is an architect Mm. 
shows her like the designs of a building that she mm. that he's designed mm. and there's this building that physically exists in the world that comes mm. from his architecture background stuff. Mm. and there's Lucy quite powerfully like has this insight where it's like he has so much proof of his existence in the world mm. and there's bits as well after her brother is born and he has lots of health complications mm. and is profoundly deaf mm. where she feels like unheard mm. uh, because the mum needs to give so much attention to the mm-hmm. to the brother because of those complications and so in what way is like the voice of Lucy or these stories or language mm. a means of achieving some more permanence or more kind of uh, solid kind of imprint in the world mm. um, I mean I think so much of it is about her searching for a voice or searching for space and that extract with the architect she says something like um you know he takes me to see school he designed and I I when he wasn't looking I touched my hands to the wall and then she says it seems unfair to me that he had so much proof of his existence while I was getting smaller every day Mm. um and then there's another bit as well where she talks about going to art galleries which is kind of this is something I really think about um I can remember sort of being younger and I guess now too and have like kind of been unable to comprehend how people had these ideas in their heads that were then made manifest in the world so I always felt really envious of like visual artists or people I knew who made big paintings because that felt really bold to have so much of yourself in a physical tangible Mm. form which is also reflected in the architect Um, And I'm actually reading at the moment um, a short story collection by Kathleen Collins called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, and it's very brilliant. Um, But there's a story in there where she articulates this really well, and she's talking about um, this kind of like beautiful middle-class artistic, politically conscious family. And she's describing the daughter of this family, and it says something like... um, she she grew up around ideas and and she'd spent her whole life um watching people talk about their ideas and seeing the struggle um to manifest them and make them real and I think there's something really key in that where so the character in this story um was constantly seeing ideas being made real you know there's such a source of power in that and I think if you come from a background or a position in the world where you feel quite powerless or you feel quite small, that seems incomprehensible that your ideas could become a concrete thing. Mm-hmm. And then also, I guess, in my life, so that's something Lucy's struggling with, the search for a voice, but also probably something that many young women struggle with. And then in my own personal life, now I have this book, which is my tangible, my voice is made tangible mm. in the world. But then that brings with it a whole other lot of anxieties. I guess, you know, it's like what I said, it's like you're looking for the space and then you're given the space and then suddenly um, you don't know what to do with it. Or like recently in Barcelona, as you know, I've been looking for um, a studio to write in and I've been going to view um, art studios and they all seem quite big and they've just got a little desk 
in the middle, maybe this is connected. I've been going into the mall and been like, oh my God, it's too big. I can't possibly mm. fill that space. What am I going to do? Just me in the middle of the room. Mm. And maybe it's linked, you know, the idea of like, I've been searching and searching for space as Lucy is searching for space, she's searching a voice. But then when you're given that power, mm-hmm. it's like hard, harder to make it manifest than if you were someone who has always been told that they're entitled mm-hmm. to that space. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of linked to that, there is, I mean, so much of this is around class and gender as we've spoken about, but there's a very profound moment when Lucy first moves to London and she has to write an essay, her first essay or something, for the professor at King's. Um, and it's on writing in London, something mm-hmm. like this. And she's looking at like lots of flanners, like, I don't know, Daniel Defoe is one of them, and maybe, I don't know if she's talked about Baudelaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that, there are these people that she observes that seem to float with such ease above the city, mm. are able to observe and detach themselves. Mm. Um, yeah, and glide in the shadows kind of mm. thing. Where she feels, she talks about how much she physically feels the city in her body. Mm. So it's like the, the way that her body inhabits mm. itself within a city like London or mm. any kind of big city um, seems to very much link to class in the way that Lucy's mm. talking about things. Um, so what, yeah, what is the, yeah, the relationship between the body and the city within the novel? and within your own ideas about this mm. as it relates to like class and gender mm. well I actually think Lucy feels everything in a very bodily way you know the book is very visceral mm. like and um, there's a whole section that is um, kind of uh, it's like trying to capture the pre preverbal and it's like um, kind of a baby or a child addressing the mother and I think there's a real I guess kind of like historically, but also I think I have experienced this, this separation between people who move easily through the world or glide through things and people who are kind of like messier and, and, and everything's closer to the bone. And I think that is related to class. And I think um, I personally have always envied that ease so much with, with people who have the ease and I've always you know there's a bit in the book where Lucy says um, when she goes to university she, she discovers that there's this different kind of skin that posh girls have it's there's a line that says um, it was it was posh girls skin um, something like polished and gold and it says um, you know it's not like my skin with my mottles and my scars and my scratches and I can remember not really been aware of that until I moved to university. And there really were these girls who had, like, something about them was very different. And mm. it was it was money and mm. wealth. Um, yeah, and also, I'm going to talk about Zadie Smith again. But she has, there's a really good essay of hers called On Writing and Dancing. Um, that she published, I think, on The Guardian in connection with her book Swing Time when it came out. Um, and she writes about Jean Kelly and, and Fred Astaire. And she writes about how the way they dance is a reflection of their position in the world. And that Fred Astaire is like, um, his movements are smooth and fluid. And, you know, he, he's very much um, dancing like a middle class or an upper class movement. Whereas Jean Kelly is like it's all in the body and the earth and like um 
she makes an allusion between how if you have less money, you're more in the earth, you're more rooted because you can't move, because you've got your job, you can't just float around. Um, and she talks about how like the poetry is reflected in their bodies, mm. which I guess is something maybe I was thinking of when I wrote those extracts where Lucy says, um, it feels like, you know, her classmates are like, I don't know, reading in parks and like going for pastries and nice bakeries. But she feels, and you know, talking about these flaneurs and reading these flaneurs, but she feels like the um, the trains are moving right over her bones. Mm. And I do, like, I, I also, I understand there's a whole kind of like feminist reclaiming of the flaneur figure, but I actually find the whole thing just kind of annoying <laughs> and like why do we have to be flaneurs you know like mm. why can't I think that it's a totally different experience to 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 feel the city in your body more and to feel vulnerable and exposed and open to all of these things that are kind of like on your skin and in your skin mm-hmm. um, and I think someone else who writes about that very well who maybe some people would describe as a flaneur but I actually disagree is um someone like Jean Reefs who writes about um being a woman in Paris and moving through the city and I I think this um these these kind of like boundary spaces are um represented really well in her work where she has all of these characters all of these poor female characters who are always on the edges and they're always on the boundaries and they feel things in a different way because, you know, they don't have a comfortable designated space mm-hmm. that's theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe a flaneur is just like detached from everything, but you can't be detached from things without a certain level of privilege, mm. I would argue. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where this kind of reclaiming, like feminist reclaiming is coming from a class privilege of some variety of tension. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say, I don't know. Um, I think it's important and I understand the argument but yeah I think I think Lucy's experience and my experience it's just something different Mm -hmm. like it's not it's not a feminist rewriting it's just it's Mm -hmm. different it's it's its own thing Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and therefore to like own I suppose the thing where Lucy feels such chaos when she's first in London inside and the way that Mm. her body she feels things in the body mm. within the city. Mm. It's like a source of like shame or desperation or something at first. Yeah. But then as the novel proceeds, it seems that like the owning of that kind yeah. of like wildness or whatever it is yeah, becomes yeah, something yeah. quite powerful. Yeah. It's like, and I remember actually dancing is a very crucial part of that yeah. where she's dancing on her own in a kitchen scene. Yeah. Of. Maybe I can read you that. Um, yeah. So she, I guess what happens to Lucy is that she comes to London and she feels kind of like, ashamed of her body or just like ashamed of herself like everything is wrong Mm -hmm. and then I guess she becomes very detached from herself in a different way okay I'm gonna read you this and then I'm gonna read you something else Mm -hmm. so this is um from when she she first moves to London and she's at university and she says I was too full I was brimming with the possibility of everything Other people's lives were carefully curated, whereas I was a tangled knot of all the people and places I had ever wanted to be. I was distracted by every bright thing and enamoured with every person I met who promised a more solid version of myself. 
I had burst out of my own skin, but I hadn't grown a new one yet. All the tiny shards of myself were loose and drifting, caught with the dust on the roads, illuminated in car headlights. I watched as they landed in the gutter with a lazy sort of panic. I didn't know how to put myself back together. Um, yeah, so I feel like she, she seeks this detachment. She wants to be like these people who glide through the world, but then she kind of realises that's never who she can be. And when she moves to Ireland, she kind of connects with her body in a way that she hadn't before. Um, and she starts dancing on her own in the kitchen, which of course is not something that I ever do, personally. <laughs> um, <laughs> she says... Sometimes at night I dance in the kitchen. It is a new kind, the sort of dancing that I can only do alone. It is a bubble that snakes through my muscles. It is dirty water spurting from a power hose after a winter curled in the pipes at the bottom of the garden, rusty and sour and desperate to be free. I turn on the radio and my limbs make shapes I didn't realise they knew. It is something like sex, the best kind when I lose myself and stop thinking. It is my body welcoming me back. I have missed you, she tells me, sliding her feet across the tiles. It's mm. very powerful. Um, yeah, we've we spoken a little bit in that uh, last part about edges and boundaries. And in here, there's, I love the bit where it's talking about um, my body teaching me shapes I didn't know they knew. Because mm. that relation to city and place, as well as the mother-daughter relationship, seems very prevalent, the metaphor of these edges and boundaries. So mm. there's, like, bits where she's in London and she's craving, like, uh, being able to be a hard edge, something mm. that she can fit into or define mm. herself within. And then other bits where she was wanting to float, maybe like the Fred Astaire, Flaneur mm. float, um, to round edges off. And there's also bits where she's talking about reading as sitting on top of like a precipice mm. where it has an ex excitement where you can like ascend, mm. but also the danger in which you could fall and never get back mm. up. Um, so yeah, I suppose like it seems that it's happening there within the city and space, mm. uh, these edges and these boundaries. Mm. And then also that passage you just read where she's talking about her relationship to her own body mm. also takes place a lot between these uh, pre-verbal, quite uh, lyrical passages mm. with the mother, between the mother, like mm. the direct address passages. And there are crucial moments uh, where the edges seem to sharpen between Lucy mm. and her mother. And that often seems to be related to when uh, Lucy's to do with her relationship with men. Mm. seems to like create these sharp edges which kind of like create a friction between them mm. and there are other bits where they seem to the edges seem to round off and curve mm. and you can almost feel this kind of like uh moving back into some womb-like kind of feeling mm. I don't know, which seemed to reflect in that last passage too between mm. lucy and her own body mm. and then there's these bits where it's like lucy and her mother yeah so i don't know um yeah what what do edges and boundary edges as a metaphor mm. play out? How do they play out? In um, well, I think sort? I think that I actually think in uh, like sh shapes a lot, shapes and spaces and edges. I think that's how I uh, 
process the world a lot, which probably comes across in the novel. Mm-hmm. And like I know we've talked before about um, like cities when they get oppressive kind of been like a lattice. Like there's all these things. Of, and I actually had this, which maybe is also in, in, in this is in the novel. <laughs> um, this idea, and this is something that I've felt quite recently. Of I, I went back to London for a few months and everything seemed sharp. Mm. Like the tiles... The tiles and, and the tube stations seem sharp, mm. like sh- sharp. There's a line in the novel that says something like, with sharp elbows shutting me out. Mm. And it, it, fe- it almost felt like I could feel the lattice, like the shapes of these oppressive structures in the streets of like, you know, whereas maybe once it had been a softer feeling place, mm. everything suddenly felt very sharp. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe that's linked to Lucy, the way in which Lucy experiences the world in a very bodily way, but also the way that I experience the world in a very bodily way. And I think perhaps, well, I think definitely if you're a woman, you are really conscious of your body in space all of the time and like how much space you take up, how you inhabit the space, who who gives you space, who doesn't give you space, who, you know, you, you feel, I feel very visible all the time in mm-hmm. a city. I mm-hmm. feel like I'm often... Um, I feel like everything I do is seen mm-hmm. um, and it's harder to be invisible in a way that's like m- more sp- in a way that you're just conscious of your space and your body all the time and you can't ever forget it mm-hmm. um, and I think that's something that Lucy you know she's struggling with in um, in her life and in the city and in how to be in the world but it's something that also is reflected in her relationships, like with her mother um, and with like various romantic partners. Mm-hmm. Because I guess that's kind of about how does your body inhabit physical spaces, but also how does your body or yourself inhabit um, emotional or psychological or metaphorical spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's a strand in the book that um, is a very, when I was writing it in my head, it was called the body section. <laughs> Um, But maybe I'll read you the prologue because I think that demonstrates it quite well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is kind of a baby addressing the mother. So, it begins with our bodies, skin on skin. My body bursts from yours. Safe together in the violet dark and yet already there are spaces beginning to open between us. I am wet and glistening like a beetroot pulsing in soil, gasping and gulping. There are wounds in your belly and teeth marks around your nipples, puffy and purpling. They came from me, just like I came from you. We are connected through molten rivers like the lava that runs beneath the earth's crust. Shifting, oil trapped beneath the sea, Precious liquid seeping through cracks. This love is heavy, salty and viscous, stinking of seaweed and yeast. Sweat is nourishing and so is that tangy vagina smell that later men will tell me tastes like battery acid. But there are not any men, not yet. For now our secrets are only ours. You press me to your chest and I am you and I am not you and we will not always belong to each other. But for now it is us and here it is quiet. I rise and fall with your breath in this bed. 
We are safe in the pink together. Mm. Um, I also think, I was just thinking while I read that, but um, kind of this thing about edges and boundaries um, is also intrinsically linked to class in that like it's kind of a cliche, but I think it's true that when, when you have less, you, you do live in a way that's closer to the edge. And I think when that, when that space becomes your comfort zone, like not having enough money or, or, or not having any stability, it's it's like difficult and traumatic, but it's also kind of exhilarating. And I think Lucy kind of like gets off on it a bit. She's always pushing herself to feel how far she can go. Mm. And I feel like that's something that I struggle with in my life too. Like for example, my life was very precarious. Um, now I'm a published author and I, I struggle with that all of the time, like, because that's, that's a more comfortable existence than I've had before. So sometimes I get these kind of, sometimes I feel kind of cushioned from the world, in a, which is completely psychological and not true, but in a, in a way that I wasn't before. And sometimes I get a bit of like a manic Lucy feeling where it's like, you feel a bit destructive or, um, I just think when when you're what I'm trying to say is when your comfort zone has been being close to the edge all of the time when you step back from that edge a little bit maybe things get a little bit more stable or you have a bit more direction that can be like equally as terrifying because you've got to learn to move through the world in a new way or inhabit this space fill the studio <laughs> with your stuff mm. you know it feels um yeah it's I think I'll always be obsessed with edges and boundaries and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. spaces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the moving between them and towards the edges. And yeah, and I guess that's what I'm trying to reflect in the mother-daughter relationship too, especially in those pre-verbal parts. It's like so much of the novel is about a pushing and pulling between a mother and a daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, the way I kind of visualise that in my head is like, you know, you're physically joined very close, like by an umbilical cord. And then in your life, you won like it's almost like you're moving away and returning and you're moving away and returning it's like a constant um widening and narrowing mm. of spaces mm-hmm. and i think well it's so powerfully evoked in the prologue but there's so much where the potency of language is is beyond the verbal so mm. in that prologue it's so bodily and about mm. kind of these kind of markers of the body or like breaths or marks or physical interactions or these kind of like a a knowledge of one another that goes way beyond words Mm. and this also links to kind of bits in the novel where there are women who cannot speak cannot speak of certain trauma till years later Mm, mm -hmm. or it's very um poignantly there with her younger brother lucy's younger Mm. brother who is deaf and how the mother and daughter speak in sign mm. in kind of public places mm. because it's a language only they can mm. share with one another and so yeah these other languages these transverbal preverbal mm. languages uh, seem to play a very important role mm. and yeah what what is the what is the place of these other languages within the novel or like what what do they enable, what kind of power do they have? Mm. Um, well, I think it's a really interesting dichotomy between like, you know, I'm a huge advocate for like language is how we process the world and, 
you know, language, when you're given the words to articulate something. You know, for example, um, Lucy doesn't understand all of these things that are happening to her. Or like also me, okay, so I grew up as a young working class woman, I went to university. Years later, really, I finally like read the books or met the friends or like had the vocabulary to talk about, oh, the reason you feel this is because of like class experiences or gender experiences. Um, and I guess this is something that Lucy talks about a lot, the, the power of, um, she says something about how naming things is like pushing dark splinters from your skin. You know, you can, you can mm. take them up, you can pick them up and take them out of you. But then at the same time, the book is so much about what cannot be spoken. And that's reflected in the bodily relationship with the mother and the daughter. You know, I felt like the only way to write about bodies actually is in a fractured way because mm. it's, it's not coherent and it's difficult and messy and I think this is also really reflected in the the uh, character of the brother who is deaf um, and because sign language it is a bodily language it's a physical language and then I I think um, kind of like the tension between that is interesting because Lucy is um, trying to she's trying to like put things into words and take them out of her and at the same time, she's aware that that can't be done. And at the same time, she kind of has this guilt because her brother can't do that. Almost like her brother is a symbol of like, uh, this is what happens when you can't articulate yourself. But then you find a new language. So I think there's, there's no answer to this, or it's mm. not like a conclusive plot device, but it just kind of opens all these questions about like, um, is articulation important? Um, where do you put your feelings if you can't speak? What about traumas that you can't speak? How do women communicate in a way that is perhaps um, non-verbal or beyond the verbal? And yeah, and also because your first ever relationship, right, with your mother or parent or carer or whoever your first person in the world is, that's non-verbal because you can't speak. So it's like we come from this mm. non-verbal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots to... Mm. It seems as well like on the t- I mean, language is such a broad theme, but as well within it, there's it's such a novel of objects, and mm. these objects kind of speak other things, you know, mm. like either of time and place and memory. Mm. But there's a push and pull in this too between the idea that Lucy feels like she can kind of um, keep objects or like build a sense mm. of ownership over them mm. and then there's other bits where her mum for example there's the the importance of makeup and clothes that Lucy's mother and her mm. auntie or the photographs Lucy finds of her mother mm. like uh, the T-Rex mm. uh, stuff that you talked about at the start and these like documentary fragments or clues about working out her own past and her mother's past mm. but then because Lucy's there's uh, quite frequently bits with Lucy's mother where she just calls these objects stuff mm. because she doesn't have she's never she doesn't have the opportunity or space or time to kind of keep these things or like allow them significance beyond the fact that like she's got to constantly be moving or mm. and um yeah what is this tension between objects being merely stuff and then there's like history bearers with more significance or um well i think i'll read you the burning scene because that's a good indicator of this Uh, So this is when, this is at the beginning of the book, and Lucy's grandfather dies. 
leaving a house in Ireland, which is a strange coincidence. Mm. And um, yeah, the the mother Lucy and her mother go to Ireland to like sort everything out. So. My mother and I have inherited my grandfather's small stone cottage through the blue stack mountains by the sea. It is tucked into a nook crammed with giant rhubarb and purple hydrangeas. There are wild potatoes and mangy kittens and clumps of shamrock clustered in the corners. The garden is very overgrown, but if I climb up onto the kitchen roof, I can see the sea. We arrived to find that colonies of mould and specks of damp thrived in my grandfather's absence. They were splattered across the walls and ceilings like a sludgy Pollock painting. Tiny worms and mites had burrowed holes in the wooden furniture. The drawers and cupboards were crusty with rust and the fridge stank of sour milk. The mattresses were crawling with bugs. In the months before my grandfather's death, Something between my mother and me was fractured. Her presence in my life had been solid and gold, then suddenly she was not there anymore. I felt her pulling away from me. It hurt inside of my body, my intestines stretched and sore. I felt confused by love, the way it could simultaneously trap you and set you free. How it could bring people impossibly close and then push them far away. How people who loved you could leave you when you needed them most. We talked about practical things when she called me in London, when the funeral would be and how I would get there. We listened to the radio during the drive from the airport and at the wake we chatted to my grandfather's neighbours and friends. It wasn't until he had been buried and everyone had gone home to their brandies that we were alone together in the silent cottage. The distance glinted between us, sharp and dangerous. We sat on a sheet of newspaper on the floor and looked around. What are we going to do? I asked her. Burn it, she said, blown on a cup of tea. You what? We're going to have to burn everything. Burn it where? She paused. In the garden. Everything. It's the only way. She gave me a look. I knew she was trying to teach me something, but I didn't know if I wanted to learn it. I knew she wanted me to let go of things that did not belong to me, but I could not work out which things were mine. I did not know how much of my story I was entitled to take and how much of the past I was allowed to leave behind. We lit a bonfire and it burned for three days. We fed it everything, the mattresses, the bed frames, the chairs, the rugs, the chest of drawers, the dishcloths, the wardrobe. Scraps of paper scribbled with his handwriting, pink betting slips, old photographs, boxes of tablets and thick rimmed glasses, his spare set of teeth. I reread musty letters I had sent him and found forgotten Christmas cards lodged between radiators and walls. We shuddered as the duvet went up in a flash and took hammers to the dining room table. We emptied bin liners filled with socks and underpants into the flames. I liked watching the sofa best. The upholstery burned in jagged shapes, leaving the wooden skeleton standing on its own for a moment, naked and shy. Plasticky smoke gathered in the trees. Are we allowed to do this? I asked my mother. Probably not, she replied. It feels good though, doesn't it? 
She squeezed my hand. Our faces were hot from the flames. We cleaned the house as the fire raised the garden, clearing the cupboards and scrubbing the sinks. We sang along to the Shangri-Las and the Ronettes, bleaching the kitchen counters until they were bright white and dazzling. I covered my mouth with a scarf, trying not to breathe in the black smoke in the garden. I didn't want tiny pieces of my granddad's quarries and furniture to settle in the bottom of my lungs, where I would never be able to get them out. Let's get some taties on this fire, eh, Luce? She joked, stoking the embers with my grandfather's walking stick. I looked at her. She had mud streaked across her forehead. I felt the sharpness between us soften a little, as though the edges had been rubbed smooth. She laughed. Don't look at me like that. It's only stuff, you know? The debris of my grandfather's life landed on our clothes and in our hair. It coated our skin. I learned that the drifting bits of ash are called fire angels. After a house fire, they are considered to be very dangerous because they can reignite the blaze. They are small and fragile, but they are still smouldering. Well, I feel like a passage encapsulates lots of things we've been talking about. The edges and the boundaries. Yeah, the... yeah, yeah. And the silence and the language. Mm. And the stuff and the not stuff. And yeah, I, I think um, you're right in your reading that uh, Lucy is constantly struggling with this idea that objects are important and hold cultural significance and are linked to her past, but then also objects are just stuff and we need to burn them and, and move and, and get rid of everything and start again. Mm. And I actually think, not to like drive the point home, <laughs> <laughs> but that is also linked to class in this idea of, um, you know, if you're from a, a more, Af if you're from a generations of an affluent family, there's lots of records of your, um, of your, your life, your history, your identity. So I, I went actually recently to a friend's uh, wedding of mine and a friend's wedding of mine, a friend of mine's wedding. And she got married in like a, a church that is kind of connected to her family. And um, uh, in the church, there were kind of like these tombstones in the walls that like bore the names of all her family mm. on them. And I remember I felt like such a mixture of things. I felt like, oh my God, imagine feeling that your life was so important or that your family were important or that your identity was so important that there were monuments built into a church. Mm. Like, wow, imagine that's the sense of like stability and power that must give you in the world. But then I also felt like this crushing sense of claustrophobia, mm. you know, like um, that's that's so determined. And I think what I have felt in my life, and I think this is something Lucy struggles with too, it's like the, the need to be connected to something, you know, in the formation of your identity. Who are you? Where do you come from? But at the same time, I think there's so much freedom in things being unwritten. So mm. you don't come from a family of lawyers or doctors or teachers or kings you mm. you know you can obviously that's more difficult but you can actually do what you want a bit mm. more there's not this weight of the past mm. or expectation on you even mm. though lucy feels that mm. in a much smaller way i feel like that's something she's constantly grappling with like am i formed by my past or am i free to do what i want and what she actually realizes is like you can't as much as these things form you and will always be part of you at the same time, 
you can't hold on to them. You've got to free yourself mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. from, yeah, the legacy of what's gone before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite, um, you know, it's quite a striking contrast, isn't it? Like tombs with your like ancestors' faces carved into them. <laughs> well, they didn't have the faces, <laughs> just the names. Okay. okay. <laughs> but I, like I've that, got I like Arundel's tomb time. in my head. Like them lying there. Anyway, let's say that their faces are carved into tombs, <laughs> looming over them. And then, like, there's that, in that, the list of all of the, like, they are just objects, the everyday objects, the chairs, the desks, the... But it's like this building up of all of the things that are remnants of this gr- the grandfather's life. Mm. Like, going up in flames, but there's a renewal there, too. Mm. As in, like, the mum and daughter can, like... You know, because there's, yeah, the mum and daughter can kind of, like, determine their own Mm. horizons. Mm. Yeah, and also that that actually happened. Actually, I did go to my granddad's house, Mm. and everything was, like, really rotten and infested with woodworm. And we did, I mean, he was a very, like, humble man. He didn't have much stuff, Mm. which is also interesting. (laughs) And uh, we did burn everything, and I remember being, like, utterly shocked and appalled and mm. upset like it seemed so symbolic and momentous and mm. like I felt really affected by it and my mum was just like really casual mm. about it but I felt like that taught me a lot because she was just like I thought she would have had much more of a connection you know like her, her father had died she mm. was burning his possessions that's really intense but she was just like no Jess it's got to go it's rotten like we've got to mm. get rid of it it's fine I'm not upset and I guess that was quite a big life lesson mm. for me mm. and also for Lucy mm. yeah connection <laughs> I don't want to like romanticize too glibly like the writer's life because obviously like uh from experience you're talking about of yourself as a writer and the precarity and the fact that you were living off like nothing and had to like go to this cottage and island blah 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 mm. um it's not this romantic idea yeah. of like but at the same time there's a seems to be and you can correct me if i'm wrong like the power of like not needing all this stuff mm. in order to to make this permanence because the words and the stories and the craft mm. of like being a writer where you're kind of stabbing in the dark because there's not these same level of representation that are middle class voices or mm. especially male voices but that also like you know the novel's so alive with uh the play of language and it's very mm. lyrical and those pre-verbal bits because it's like having to find mm. a different way of articulating things because they haven't been articulated as much before mm. mm-hmm. and so yeah. i suppose this bit in a novel i remember where lucy actually says um, the architect could go around with his plans with this mm. um, kind of layering of privilege and evidence of his mm. existence, but all I needed was myself. Mm. And that's quite a powerful... Mm. That seems to be a hugely powerful kind of resonance mm. that comes out of the novel. Mm. And maybe in your life mm. too, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I actually think... I often think that's maybe why I became a writer or like... Yes, became a writer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, because I always felt really intimidated by, like, people who did art stuff who needed loads of things. Like, where do you get the equipment? Where do you get the books? Where do you get the paintings? Where do you get your camera? Where do you get your crew? You know, it is, like... Um, I think I'm a bit afraid of stuff, mm-hmm. which maybe does stem from, like, a class thing or a having thing. Um, and... Yeah... And I guess to like, kind of like envy people who 
like as I said before, have proof of their existence and like uh, live in this like big way. You know, there's a bit in the book where Lucy says um, she's trying to spread herself out and make a mess, and she wants evidence that she's existing, and she wants her kitchen to be dirty. You know, she doesn't. She realizes that she doesn't want to be hiding away. So I guess it's the dichotomy of like um, uh, wanting evidence that you exist, but also there's like so much power in the recognition that all that power is actually inside of you. Mm. You know, there's a bit where she says, um, I'm, I, I'm suspecting that everything I need has always been inside of me. Mm. You know, rather than like looking outwards for like these people to shape you or to realize that actually you have an enormous resource of power inside. But if you're perhaps a young working class woman, you've been told that you haven't, you've been made to feel like you don't, have that power mm -hmm. um, and I also think it's important to talk about uh, what you said about the romanticism of this life as a writer because I, I feel like there's lots of mystique around writing or like this image of the artist or like you know this troubled like talented individual which yeah people are troubled and they are talented you know there's lots of very talented writers but I think also like it's a craft and you work at it and it's really hard and it's really emotional and I like have panic attacks over edits and like it's I, I did a you know I did a master's degree in creative writing that I, I did with the money my granddad left when he died I worked in pubs I cleaned toilets I like it's it's been incredibly stressful and it's been lots of hard work and I'm not saying this to be like look how hard I've worked mm. I'm just saying that like it's not something magical mm. and it's not like I get really frustrated when people kind of portray this image of like whiling away the afternoons in cafes with tinkling teapots mm. and like um, your journals spread before you and antique libraries because yeah maybe all that stuff exists but that's so not my experience of writing it's like painful and bloody and messy and awkward and difficult and like I feel like it actually does it an injustice when people have this detached, mm. like, just luxuriating in language. Mm -hmm. I find that irritating. Mm -hmm. But anyway. Mm. <laughs> How does it link? Is what I was thinking about when you're saying that the kind of like kind of writing that comes out of that struggle mm. has a lot often has a lot more hunger or more fierceness to it. I suppose. Because it's born out of a struggle. Like, how does... Mm. don't know. Do you mm. want to talk about that at all? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that one type of experience is worth, worth more than another. No, no, no. Yeah, because I know there's... You know, I'm not, there's all kinds of struggles that come out of mm. middle-class life as well. Um, but I guess it connects to the bodily thing. I guess... Yeah, I guess I've been... Through writing this book, I've been trying to figure out why I experience the world in such a bodily way like why you know like I, f I feel things really directly in my body like if I'm if I'm upset I feel like I'm going to be sick I, you know everything feels linked into my body and the way that kind of like through writing this book and creating the character of Lucy and thinking about all of this I think it is related to class and it is related to gender and it because you know I guess we're all formed by the way in which we move through the world and what was the other part of your question um just like the way in which writing from a hunger or a kind of mm. a different kind of desperation to be heard or or like 
writing and art, I suppose, is something which is about survival, not something that's like a marker of mm. your privilege. Well, there's a Jeanette Winterson quote, and it seems a bit trite to quote Jeanette Winterson when talking about class, but <laughs> I actually still think she's she's very important. And um, oranges... is this from her autobiography? Yeah, so if people don't know Jeanette Winston, she wrote a very famous book called Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit. That actually, when I was at school, my English teacher um, pushed and pushed and pushed me to read. And she'd be like, there's, there's this book, you've got to read it. There's this book, you've got to read it. She'd ask me all the time, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? Mm. And I never read it. I don't know, I was just like busy doing teenage things and I didn't read this book. And then I came to read it years later. And I was actually really glad I'd waited because I think I wouldn't have understood the significance of why she was asking me to read it before. Mm -hmm. But anyway, in Jeanette Winterson's uh, memoir called Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal, which is like a non-fictional retelling of, um, of the Orange's story, she says, let me find the quote. Yeah, so she says, um, I was confused about sex and sexuality and upset about the straightforward practical problems of where to live, where to eat and how to do my A-levels. I had no one to help me, but T.S. Eliot helped me. And then she quotes a T.S. Eliot quote, and I know there's also problems with T.S. Eliot. <laughs> That's not your fault. <laughs> but then she says... So when people say that poetry is a luxury or an option or for the educated middle classes or that it shouldn't be read at school because it is irrelevant or any of the strange and stupid things that are said about poetry and its place in our lives, I expect that the people doing the same have had things pretty easy. A tough life needs a tough language and that's what poetry is. That is what it offers. A language powerful enough to say it how it is. I think in as well about so this relationship between class and art and access, and we've spoke earlier on in our chat today about uh, that kind of isolation she feels from these flanners and mm. um, when she has to write that essay. But music seems to be a really pivotal way in which Lucy and her mates in the northeast access culture. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's like writing about the like emergence of the MySpace generation mm. and this kind of democratization of like access to culture and music. Mm. So what is that importance of, of music in um, the novel and in your life as a means of cultural access? Uh, I think music is a big means of cultural access and particularly, you know, like the internet really changed the face of that. And um, I have a friend that I actually spoke to just before I wrote the book and uh he is from uh, a small town in wales and kind of went to university a bit later than most people do and he told me this story so he was kind of, he was like a dj and he put on nights and stuff like that and he told me this story about how he'd educated himself kind of just through reading music magazines and he would read interviews with musicians he liked and then they would name check a book and then he would read the book and like that's how he built up his library and his knowledge and that really resonated with me and I think there was particularly something I mean I'm not I'm not a teenager on the internet now so I don't know how it grows as much but I think within like the early 2000s music scene um 
there kind of was this culture of this link between music and literature and musicians would write blogs and teenagers would read the books that they um, talked about and I guess if like you haven't got a big bookshelf in your house or you know access to like a good public library then that is a Books yeah, stuff. yeah. yeah you, have, you haven't got that, then it, it, I think it is important. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one last thing I want to kind of come to, and then I think I'm going to end with a, another song, mm-hmm. which is around um, gender identity. And one thing that I was really struck by mm-hmm. in Salt Water was mm-hmm. these back to objects, I suppose, these markers of. Uh, class identity which Lucy observes with like her mother and her auntie mm-hmm. um, in terms of like the makeup and the mm. rituals of that mm-hmm. and there's that's another push and pull between these like socialised feminine identities you know the, the wearing and makeup and things like that mm. as being sources of power as well as them also being like you know you talked about the like being raped by eyes and things like that mm. um, and how visible the female body is in the novel and stuff and in the world Mm. Um, so, but Lucy observes that this, these, like, this makeup becomes like a kind of armour and a sheltering mm. for her mum mm. and that without it she feels exposed and vulnerable in a way that is um, kind of like makes her feel less, like mm. less, uh, takes away from her feeling of strength, mm. her, her mother. And so what do you feel is the importance of these markers of uh, socialised feminine identity in the novel? Um, well, and the, oh. sorry, and the, it's a kind of a tension between the femme as a source of power mm. and as a way in which women are marginalised. Yeah, um, well, this kind of goes back to Jean Rhys again. Actually, she writes about this very well, like the power of clothes and makeup in constructing a feminine identity, um, particularly in her novel *Good Morning Midnight*, um, with the character of Sasha, who is like always questing for clothes and makeup and ways to change her image. Um, But in my book, um, I think it's kind of like an interesting dichotomy between the way, the ways in which these women are like um, subjugated or oppressed because of their gender or because of their performed gender identity. But at the same time, I think there is a lot of power in clothes and makeup. And I think like to just see them as symbols of oppression is like kind of frustrating and not very progressive and I think I feel or I have felt before in my life maybe in particular uh, radical feminist circles if I turn up in my red lipstick people like bristle a little bit and that's not in my perspective that's not what like a safe and encouraging you know within like an ideal feminist uh, safe and supportive space it should be you're allowed to express your gender identity in whatever form you see fit. And I think particularly within the novel, it's like Lucy, or like within my life, like my mum, for example, she, um, you know, she won't leave the house without her makeup on. And she loves to talk about makeup and she loves to try things out. And it actually, it gives her a lot of power and it's a source of armour. And it's interesting because she she's performing her gender identity in like kind of a a very conscious way like mm. you know if i could if i look like everything's going well then i've got the strength to handle it mm. you know her and her friend always say oh are you, 
I feel exhausted, let's put a bit of lippy on and, and we'll feel better. Mm. And she's always like, you do, you do feel better. And I think this is something that's ne- like maybe neglected in conversations, like the power of crows and makeup or the ritual of it. And in the, in the Jean Reese book, In Good Morning Midnight, Sasha says something like, I think she sells her fur coat, a man buys her a fur coat and she sells her fur coat and she goes out without it and then she feels like she can't perform this role in the city. So it's also the idea that clothes and makeup, like, obviously, yeah, it's all of, there's false promises linked to capitalism and all of these things, but like, there is a chance to perform a different version of yourself, Mm -hmm. which can sometimes be very empowering. And um, yeah, Sasha says something like, I must be very careful. Today I've left my armor at home. Mm-hmm. So it's like she doesn't have, she doesn't have um, like her disguise. Her, but also in this book, Jean Reese plays out the other side of it where um, Sasha lusts after this dress that she thinks will change her life. But obviously it won't. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's, um, I feel like makeup and clothes are really important in the novel and kind of in the way that the women connect and in the way that the women it's a symbol of like how they have this kind of internal struggle but then they kind of put their face on and they go out to face the world and like yeah you could argue that that's oppressive because they're they're hiding all their troubles inside but then also it's like do women have to perform their pain all the time mm. and is there worth in that you can put your mask on and your skin feels thicker and you can go and like do your life you know, which I think is a theme that's prevalent in the book and in my life too. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, thanks so much for chatting today, Jessica. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and your own show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, really exciting that Soul Water will soon have a place in the world. Yes. And yeah, so it's out next spring, right? Well, it's out on the 16th of May, 2019. Cool. So watch, watch that space. Yeah, which is also my childhood best friend's birthday, which mm. feels very, I don't know, uh, what's the word? Auspicious. Auspicious. <laughs> wow. Good, good final word on the show. <laughs>